Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. You're listening to episode 109 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Cottingly Fairies. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For thousands of years, in many cultures, people have reported seeing tiny human-like creatures. They come in many forms and go by many names. Elves, gnomes, sylphs, nymphs, the little people, and fairies. Sometimes they're friendly, sometimes they play tricks, and sometimes they're hostile. They're often thought to be nature spirits that take care of plants and woodlands. Could such creatures exist? In July 1917, 103 years ago this month, two English girls got what many thought was photographic proof that they do. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, agreed. Was he right? Do the photos prove that fairies exist? And what are the implications if they do? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, who are the central figures in our mystery today? There are two English girls named Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths. Elsie Wright was born in 1901, and in the summer of 1917, she was 16 years old. Elsie was described by her mother as a dreamy, imaginative child, though she did have a practical side. She worked for a time running errands for a local photographer's studio, and a few years later, she was working at a place that manufactured Christmas cards. She lived until the 1980s, passing on in 1988 at the age of 87. Frances Griffiths was her cousin. She was born in 1907, and in 1917, she was 10 years old. She had spent most of her young life in South Africa, but she and her mother had recently returned to England, and they were staying with Elsie's family. Frances also lived until the 1980s, passing away in 1986 at the age of 79. I haven't been able to find out a lot about what happened to them in their adult lives, other than that they both married, both became mothers and grandmothers, and both lived abroad for a time. I also know that Francis had a daughter named Christine Lynch, who gave some interviews in 2009. Since today's mystery concerns something called the Cottingley Fairies, I assume the girls were living in a place called Cottingley. Yes, Elsie's family had a house in the village of Cottingley in West Yorkshire. West Yorkshire is in the north of England, not far from the Scottish border, as if anything is far from anywhere in England. <laughs> it's all relative, you know. Yes. In the summer of 1917, when this mystery began, World War I was in full swing. In fact, Germany seemed to be having the upper hand at the moment in Europe. But the United States had just entered the war after Germany began using its U-boats to sink American flagged ships in the North Atlantic. Also, that same summer in Portugal, Our Lady of Fatima, who we discussed in episodes 40, 64, and 65, was making her monthly appearances to the three shepherd children. And we were about a year away from the disastrous 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Despite the global conflict that was going on, Elsie lived in an idyllic spot. Behind her house, there was a beautiful wood with a stream known as Cottingley Beck, which even had a small waterfall. Since her 10-year-old cousin Frances and her mother were staying with them, having just returned from South Africa, the two girls would spend time playing in the woods. They would take off their shoes and stockings and play in the stream or beck. Then they would return home with wet feet and clothing, and their mothers would be annoyed. <laughs> As you do. So when did the girls first encounter the fairies? According to Elsie, she first saw the fairies in 1915, when she would have been 14 years old, but she didn't tell anybody about them. She didn't even tell her playmate Frances, who encountered them on her own. 
In her 1982 book, Reflections on the Cottingly Fairies, Frances wrote, Elsie was working at that time because I was up the beck alone quite a lot after school. It was good to sit quietly on the willow branch and listen to the sound of the water, the odd bee buzzing, and an occasional splash as a frog plunged into a deep pool. It was early summer, and the weather was still fine as I sat on the overhanging willow branch, feet dangling in the water, and saw a little man walking with high steps toward me. As he reached the first branch of the willow, he seemed to just reach up and pick a leaf as easily as you or I would pick a bluebell. He held the leaf in his hand and twirled it round just as before, walking down to the beck and crossing it. Now to me, this did seem odd. With all my experience of boats made of tree bark or rotten wood, I knew instinctively that if he had weight, he would go down with the current, but he just strolled across the beck and then gave a little hop onto the bank at the other side. At the time, thought nothing about it, but later I did wonder about his feet seeming to walk on water, but didn't know what to make of it. He had a rugged face similar, I would think, to the faces of the railway carters who delivered goods on wagons driven by those lovely old shire horses. He wasn't ugly, but neither did he have a friendly face. He just looked as if he were going about a job of work. Once I saw him leading three or four little men who were dressed as he was in a green jerkin and dark-colored green loose-fitting tights, rather like our young people wear their Levi's today. They all walked very purposefully, and when they had crossed the beck, they turned toward the right. I watched them until they went behind a clump of willow herb and were lost from sight. I didn't tell Elsie for a long time. This was my secret, mine alone, and I didn't want to share it. Elsie had never mentioned seeing the little men when they came whilst she was there. They must have known we were there because the first time I saw the little man on his own gave me a good hard stare before going on his way. So how did the girls come to take photographs of the fairies? Francis had fallen into the beck and gotten all wet, which annoyed their mothers. To explain why she was in the beck, the girls said that they'd gone in to see the fairies. But their parents scoffed at this and teased the children about seeing fairies. Despite their parents' skepticism and teasing, the girls maintained their story. One Saturday in July of 1917, 103 years ago this month, Elsie begged her father, Arthur, to lend her his midge camera. Although she had worked running errands for a local photographer's studio, Elsie had never used a camera herself, and so she'd never taken a picture. Her father was thus reluctant to loan her the camera, but eventually he put a single photographic plate in it and let her take it. This was obviously before digital photographers and even before reels of film. You had to put in a plate to take one single photo. She and her cousin Francis then went off to play in the garden, and researcher Joe Cooper explains what happened next. They were away for about half an hour and Mr. Wright developed the plate later in the afternoon. He was surprised to see strange white shapes coming up, imagining them to be first birds and then sandwich papers left lying around. In vain, Elsie, behind him in the darkroom, said they were fairies. In an interview aired many years later on Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers, Elsie and Francis remember this moment. Dad says, I'll tell you what it's coming up like, that, that picture you've taken. He says, it's very untidy. He says, you've been eating sandwiches, the sandwich paper's all sticking up. Uh, and then he says, oh, what's these little leg things down here? And Elsie shouted out, they've come, they've come, they've come out. So Arthur Wright saw the legs of the fairies and realized they weren't just sandwich papers. And just to be clear, this is the most famous of the Cottingley Fairy photos. This is the one that we're using as the artwork for this episode. And we'll have a link to where you can view all of the photographs that the girls took. In this photo, you see Francis, the 10-year-old cousin, looking uh, over a bunch of vegetation at the camera with a group of four or five winged fairies dancing around her. A month or so later, Mr. Wright loaned the camera to the girls again, and this time they came back with another photograph. This one featured 16-year-old Elsie sitting on the grass in the woods with a winged gnome in front of her. What was the reaction of the girls' parents to seeing these photos? They were very skeptical. Mr. Wright thought that the photos were, quote, nothing but a prank, and that the girls had faked them somehow. 
The parents tried to get the girls to admit this, but they didn't. Mr. Wright and his wife Polly also searched the girls' bedroom and wastebasket looking for scraps of cutouts or pictures of fairies, but they didn't find anything. Mr. Wright did, however, refuse to lend the camera to the girls anymore, and so there would be no more pictures for the time being. So then how did the photos come to the attention of the public? Did they send them to the press? No. According to the Standard account, the disbelieving parents had no interest in doing that and exposing their family to ridicule. However, the photos were eventually shared. In 1918, Frances sent a letter to a friend of hers in Cape Town, South Africa, named Joanna Parvin. She wrote, Dear Joe, I hope you are quite well. I wrote a letter before, only I lost it or got mislaid. Do you play with Elsie and Nora Biddles? I am learning French geometry, cookery, and algebra at school now. Dad came home from France the other week after being there 10 months, and we all think the war will be over in a few days. We are going to get our flags to hang upstairs in our bedroom. I am sending two photos, both of me, one of me in a bathing costume in our backyard. Uncle Arthur took that, while the other is me with some fairies up the back. Elsie took that one. Rosebud is as fat as ever, and I've made her some new clothes. How are Teddy and Dolly? Notice how she just casually and matter-of-factly drops that one of the pictures is of me with some fairies up the back, as if it's no big deal. On the back of that photo, Francis wrote, Elsie and I are very friendly with the Beck fairies. It is funny, I never used to see them in Africa. It must be too hot for them there. The thing that really started the Cottingly Fairy sensation, though, was something that Elsie's mother, Polly Wright, did. She was interested in theosophy and would go to theosophical lectures. Theosophy is a religion that was started in the 1800s by Madame Helena Blavatsky, and we will be discussing it in future episodes. In the summer of 1919, Mrs. Wright went to a theosophical lecture, and the subject that night happened to be about the life of fairies. According to some accounts, she mentioned the fairy photographs to the person sitting next to her. According to another account I've read, she even had the photos with her and showed them to the speaker at the end of that evening's talk. There was an interest in the photos, and they were put on display at a bigger event, an annual conference that the Theosophical Society held a few months later in the nearby town of Harrogate. At the conference, they were seen by noted Theosophical lecturer and investigator Edward Gardner. And once that happened, as Sherlock Holmes would say, the game was afoot. Speaking of Sherlock Holmes, how did Sherlock Holmes's creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, get involved? In addition to being an author of detective fiction, Conan Doyle was, at this point in his life, very interested in psychic and paranormal research. He was not a theosophist himself, but he knew theosophists and was on friendly terms with them. He himself was a spiritualist. Spiritualism was another movement that got started in the 1800s, and it was devoted to contacting the dead with seances. In any event, news of the fairy photos was spreading through the circles in which Conan Doyle circulated, and in May of 1920, a friend told him about them. Conan Doyle then teamed up with Edward Gardner, and they started investigating and writing about the case. In fact, it was Conan Doyle who first published the photos and wrote about them in the press. His article appeared in the December or Christmas 1920 issue of The Strand magazine, the same magazine in which he originally published the Sherlock Holmes stories, though at this point Sherlock was getting near the end of his career and there would only be about a dozen more stories published. In his article on the fairies, Conan Doyle used pseudonyms to protect the privacy of the girls and their families, but just like in episodes 93 and 94 on Brady Murphy, Investigators quickly figured out who they were, and the family dropped their objection to having their names publicly known. What was Conan Doyle's initial reaction to seeing the photographs? Both he and Edward Gardner were very intrigued, but neither accepted the photos uncritically. In fact, they took them to a series of photographers and photographic experts to ask their opinions. In a letter to Conan Doyle, Gardner explained that at the very beginning of his investigation, when I at length obtained a view of the rather poor prince, it so impressed me, I begged for the actual negatives. These I submitted to two first-class photographic experts, one in London and one in Leeds. 
The first, who was unfamiliar with such matters, declared the plates to be perfectly genuine and unfaked, but inexplicable. The second, who did know something of the subject and had been instrumental in exposing several psychic fakes, was also entirely satisfied. Then they took them to other experts, including from places like the Kodak Company, which still existed and was a big thing in photography at the time. <laughs> and one thing that, they, that the experts agreed on was that the photographs had not been double exposed. A double exposure happens when you take two photographs using the same piece of film, so one appears on top of the other. It causes the two images of the two photographs to be superimposed on each other. And hoaxers have used that technique to make alleged photos of like transparent ghosts that are superimposed over scenes of ordinary people or objects. In this case, the experts said that there was no double exposure. Whatever the fairies and the gnome were, they were not superimposed over images of the girls. One expert noted that the figures of the fairies moved during the exposure, the, the, and the shutter snap was only a 50th of a second. So while the shutter was open for that 50th of a second, the fairies moved, which was consistent with the idea that they were dancing around Francis. They would have been moving. Other uh, experts they talked to said that they couldn't find any evidence of a double exposure or another trick, but they weren't prepared to say that the pictures were genuinely paranormal, since by doing careful work in their photography studios, they thought they could produce similar pictures. By the time he wrote his article for the Christmas issue of The Strand, Conan Doyle had enough confidence that the pictures were real that he began the article this way. Should the incidents here narrated and the photographs attached hold their own against the criticisms which they will excite, it is no exaggeration to say that they will mark an epic in human thought. I put them and all the evidence before the public for examination and judgment. If I am myself asked whether I consider the case to be absolutely and finally proved, I should answer that in order to remove the last faint shadow of doubt I should wish to see the result repeated before a disinterested witness. At the same time, I recognize the difficulty of such a request, since rare results must be obtained when and how they can. But short of final and absolute proof, I consider, after carefully going into every possible source of error, that a strong prima facie case has been built up. The cry of fake is sure to be raised and will make some impression upon those who have not had the opportunity of knowing the people concerned, or the place. On the photographic side, every objection has been considered inadequately met. The pictures stand or fall together. Both are false or both are true. All the circumstances point to the latter alternative. And yet, in a matter involving so tremendous a new departure, one needs overpowering evidence before one can say that there is no conceivable loophole for error. So he's very confident that the pictures are real, but not so confident as to say there's no possibility of him being wrong. So what happened after the article came out? There was a controversy over the photos, though not as big a one as Conan Doyle expected. Some of the papers in Yorkshire itself made rather extensive inquiries, and it was reported that they asked all the local photographers for a considerable radius around to find out if they were accomplices in faking photos, but none said that they were. One investigator was sent from the Westminster Gazette to get to the bottom of the whole matter. He interviewed the people involved, including the parents and the girls, but he ultimately concluded that he wasn't able to get evidence that would either prove or disprove the fairies, so his investigation was inconclusive. He was able, though, to validate the reporting that had been done up to that time, the things that Gardner and Conan Doyle were saying were accurate. The family members were still acknowledging the same sequence of events that had been reported. But they were a bit frustrated with all the attention they were receiving. Both Elsie's father, Arthur, and Elsie herself said that they were fed up with the whole thing. Nevertheless, they did not change their stories. Conan Doyle said he wanted to see the phenomenon replicated before disinterested observers. Did that happen? Up to a point, Lord Copper. <laughs> Fairies are apparently really shy, which is why we don't see them all the time, so they wouldn't come out for just anybody. Uh, they did trust the girls, however, so they were willing to come out for them and be photographed again. 
Apparently, fairies are normally seen by children and people with psychic powers. And according to the theory, they won't usually manifest for normal people. And once a child hits puberty, their ability to see fairies starts to diminish and is typically gone by the time they reach adulthood. This was a source of concern for Gardner and Conan Doyle, since it was now 1920 and the girls were considerably older. Francis was now 13 and Elsie was 19. They were afraid that they wouldn't have many opportunities at least many more opportunities for the girls to get photographs of the fairies. This was in part because the girls seemed to need to be together to do this. Apparently, their individual psychic vibrations weren't usually enough to summon the fairies. It needed to be a combination of both girls. Also, the fairies only came out in good weather when it was sunny. It was thought that the warm, bright weather might have something to do with helping generate the right vibrational levels to get the fairies to manifest visibly. But bright, sunny weather isn't always on offer in Yorkshire, which further limited the times that the girls could get photographs. Nevertheless, Gardner gave the girls some cameras and better ones than their father had and asked them to do what they could. He also gave them a bunch of plates of film that had, without his knowledge, been secretly marked by Gardner's supplier of plates, which meant that the girls couldn't substitute other plates for them as some kind of trickery. Were they able to get more photos? Yes. In the summer of 1920, they were able to get three more photos, all using the plates Gardner had given them. The first was of Frances with a fairy leaping towards her. Some who saw the photo thought the fairy was flying, but the girls explained it was only leaping, which is why you can see a tiny bit of blur around Frances's head as she's pulling it back to avoid the fairy smacking her in the face. The second was a picture of a fairy offering Elsie a flower. And the third was a picture of several fairies in tall grass. The girls titled this photo, Fairies and Their Sunbath, you know, like they're here sunbathing in the grass though others referred to it as the fairy's bower, meaning a kind of shelter in the garden. And did they try again in the summer of 1921? They did, and this time the girls were given really high-quality cameras, including a stereoscopic camera, meaning one that could photograph objects in 3D. Also, they were given a motion picture camera. And that way, with the new cameras, they could reveal that the fairies were three-dimensional objects, you know, with the stereoscopic camera, and that they really did move and walk and dance about with the movie camera. Unfortunately, they weren't able to get any pictures this time. Conan Doyle explains, A combination of circumstances stood in the way of success. There was only a fortnight during which Francis could be at Cottingley, and it was a fortnight of almost incessant rain, the long drought breaking at the end of July in Yorkshire. In addition, a small seam of coal had been found in the Fairy Glen, and it had been greatly polluted by human magnetism. These conditions might perhaps have been overcome, but the chief impediment of all was the change in the girls, the one through womanhood and the other through board school education. I assume that by saying the Fairy Glen had been polluted by human magnetism, he means that so many people had come to examine the new coal seam that their vibrations interfered with the fairies being able to manifest or maybe scared them off from manifesting. However, the girls were still able to see the fairies psychically, even if they weren't manifesting visibly, and they weren't the only ones seeing them psychically. According to Conan Doyle, Mr. Gardner had a friend whom I will call Mr. Sergeant, who held a commission in the tank corps in the war, and is an honorable gentleman with neither the will to deceive nor any conceivable object in doing so. This gentleman has long had the enviable gift of clairvoyance in a very high degree, and it occurred to Mr. Gardner that we might use him as a check upon the statements of the girls. With great good humor, he sacrificed a week of his scanty holiday, for he is a hard-worked man, in this curious manner. But the results seem to have amply repaid him. I have before me his reports, which are in the form of notes made as he actually watched the phenomena recorded. The weather was, as stated, bad on the whole, though clearing occasionally. Seated with the girls, he saw all that they saw, and more, for his powers proved to be considerably greater. 
Having distinguished a psychic object, he would point in the direction and ask them for a description, which he always obtained correctly within the limit of their powers. The whole glen, according to his account, was swarming with many forms of elemental life, and he saw not only wood elves, gnomes, and goblins, but the rarer undines floating over the stream. Conan Doyle acknowledged that he's using a pseudonym to protect the name of Gardner's psychic friend by calling him Mr. Sergeant, because I guess he was a sergeant in the tank corps. However, it was later revealed that he was actually a clairvoyant known as Jeffrey Hodson, who was very famous at the time. And wow, did Hodson's participation in the project pay off. In his 1921 book, The Coming of the Fairies, Conan Doyle devotes a whole chapter to excerpts from the notes that Hodson sent him about the extensive phenomena he witnessed. On one occasion, this happened. In the field, we saw figures about the size of the gnome. They were making weird faces and grotesque contortions at the group. One in particular took great delight in knocking his knees together. These forms appeared to Elsie singly, one dissolving and another appearing in its place. I, however, saw them in a group, with one figure more prominently visible than the rest. Elsie saw also a gnome like the one in the photograph, but not so bright and not colored. I saw a group of female figures playing a game somewhat resembling the children's game of oranges and lemons. They played in a ring. The game resembled the grand chain in the Lancers. One fairy stood in the center of the ring, more or less motionless, while the remainder, who appeared to be decked with flowers and to show colors, not normally their own, danced round her. Some joined hands and made an archway for the others, who moved in and out as in a maze. I noticed that the results of the game appeared to be the forming of a vortex of force, which streamed upwards to an apparent distance of four or five feet above the ground. I also noticed that in those parts of the field where the grass was thicker and darker, there appeared to be a correspondingly extra activity among the fairy creatures. By the way, the Lancers is a real dance. It's a quadrille or an early form of square dance, and we'll have a link to a video of the Grand Chain that Hodson mentions in that dance, so you can get a sense of what the fairies are doing and how they're dancing. If you know modern square dancing, a grand chain is basically a right and left grand. On another occasion, two tiny wood elves came racing over the ground past us as we sat on a fallen tree trunk. Seeing us, they pulled up short about five feet away and stood regarding us with considerable amusement, but no fear. They appeared as if completely covered in a tight-fitting one-piece skin which shone slightly as if wet. They had hands and feet large and out of proportion to their bodies. Their legs were somewhat thin, ears large and pointed upwards, being almost pear-shaped. There were a large number of these figures racing about the ground. Their noses appeared almost pointed and their mouths wide. No teeth and no structure inside the mouth, not even a tongue, so far as I could see. It was as if the whole were made up of a piece of jelly. Surrounding them, as an etheric double surrounds a physical form, is a greenish light, something like chemical vapor. As Francis came up and sat within a foot of them, they withdrew as if in alarm, a distance of eight feet or so, where they remained apparently regarding us and comparing notes of their impressions. These two live in the roots of a huge beech tree. They disappeared through a crevice into which they walked, as one might into a cave, and sank below the ground. And there were many more such occasions described in Hodson's notes, but these will give you a taste of what he and the girls saw. If you want to read more about all the cute fairies and the odd, act, playful activities and how they cared for plants and things, check out that chapter in Conan Doyle's book, The Coming of the Fairies. It, it's quite extensive. So how did people explain all the reports of this fairy activity? Well, of course, some people were skeptical and dismissed it all as hoaxes and imagination. I particularly like a quip that was made by one critic at the time. He said, Knowing children, and knowing that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has legs, I decide that the Miss Wrights have pulled one of them. Yeah, but other people took the accounts at face value and believed them. In fact, after Conan Doyle's 1920 article came out, he got letters from all over the world from people who also reported seeing fairies. One of my favorites was a man named Matthews who lived in San Antonio, Texas. He said that before they hit puberty, his three daughters could all see fairies. Conan Doyle reports, These children seem to have gone into a trance state before they found themselves in the country of the fairies, a country of intelligent beings very small, 12 to 18 inches high, 
According to their accounts, they were invited to attend banquets or celebrations, excursions on beautiful lakes, etc. Each child was able to entrance instantly. This they always did when they visited Fairyland, but when the fairies came to them, which was generally in the twilight, they sat in chairs in normal state watching them dance. The father adds, My own children learned in this way to dance, so that at local entertainments, audiences were delighted, though they never knew from what source they learned. My correspondent does not say whether there is a marked difference between the European and the American type of fairy. No doubt, if these results are confirmed and followed up, there will be an exact classification in the future. I love the idea of learning to dance from Texas fairies and then showing off the results <laughs> at a local party. There also was a third theory that some people held. It was an intermediate idea between outright rejection of the phenomena and also full belief as fairies. Some people claimed that the fairies, including ones in the photographs, might be thought forms. Uh, this meant that they would be formed by the thoughts of the girls. In other words, they were psychic projections constructed by thought. In some of the literature of the period, you'll find references to tulpas, which are either the same or at least a similar concept, depending on how tulpa and thought form get defined. This is like a concept we discussed in episode 99 on Our Lady of Akita. Although the bishop eventually judged that the apparitions were real, some people had proposed that the Virgin Mary wasn't really appearing to Sister Agnes and causing the statue to weep. Instead, it was Sister Agnes's own ectoplasmic powers, so she was subconsciously causing the statue to weep using her psychic powers without meaning to. And that's essentially what the proposal here is, that the fairies weren't real objective entities. Instead, the girls were subconsciously using psychic powers to project them and make them real enough that they could appear visibly and be photographed. So after the girls grew up, did they continue to maintain that the fairies were real? They did. Both women spent time living abroad, but by 1966, Elsie had returned to the UK and a Daily Express reporter tracked her down and interviewed her. She said that the fairies were genuine, though she seemed open to the possibility that the fairies had been thought forms and that she and Francis projected, ra projected them rather than them being objectively real beings. In 1971, the BBC program Nationwide in interviewed Elsie, and she seemed more definite, saying, I've told you that they were photographs of figments of our imagination, and that's what I'm sticking to. So she seemed to be suggesting or endorsing the idea that they were thought forms or tulpas. But they continued to maintain that the photographs were genuine. In 1976, the cousins were interviewed by Yorkshire Television, and they said this. Did you in any way fabricate those photographs? Of course not. You tell us how she could do it, and we'll you tell, tell us, yeah. and then we'll tell you. She, remember, she was 16. I was 10. So they were definitely sticking with their story. Interest in the Cottingley Fairies continued to come in waves over the years. In 1994, Terry Jones of Monty Python authored a book called Lady Cottington's Lady Coddington's Pressed Fairy Book, which features illustrations of fairies squashed between the pages like butterflies. <laughs> In 1997, Amel Gibson produced a movie based on the events called Fairy Tale, A True Story, and Gibson himself has a cameo as Francis's father. Today, the photographs and the cameras used to take them are on display in the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, England. So if you're one of our UK listeners, you could take a road trip and go see them. Excellent. So before we get into theories and our perspectives, well, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Jeff G, Jeremiah N, Aaronus R, Paul O, and David M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. 
So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Cottingley fairies? We've mentioned the three theories that developed in the wake of the initial reports, that it was all a hoax, that the fairies were thought forms projected by the girls, and that they were real beings. So we need to consider those three theories from the reason perspective. From the faith perspective, we need to consider what it would mean if they were real objective beings. All right, let's start with the faith perspective. What can we say about the Cottingly fairies from the faith perspective? If they were real, they would either be physical beings, you know, like us, or purely spiritual beings like angels. If they were pure spirits, three possibilities would suggest themselves. They could be angels, they could be demons, or they could be spirits of the dead. The case for any of these three is not particularly strong. The fact that they act happy and innocent could suggest angels, but angels don't normally manifest in this way. Since some of the fairies are reported playing tricks on people or even getting mad if you, like, build a road through their house, you know, they can do mad stuff. And so that could suggest demons, but the evidence isn't very strong. And there's nothing in particular to suggest that they're departed human souls. The fact that they could be photographed would suggest that they were physical creatures. And here there are some interesting possibilities. Of course, they could be aliens because it's always, always aliens, aliens. <laughs> uh, though we don't have evidence for them being from other planets. Taking the phenomena at face value, they would seem to be native to Earth. And in fact, they seem to have a key role in caring for plants. That would make them a kind of parallel race or set of races that evolved alongside us, but that are normally hidden from us, making them what are called crypto-terrestrials, from the Greek word kryptos, meaning hidden. The fact that they fade in and out of visibility was taken to indicate that they live on a different vibrational level or dimension, making them interdimensional creatures. I also found a suggestion made by one of Conan Doyle's associates particularly interesting. He said, The nearest approach I can get to them is to say that they are spiritual monkeys. They have the active brains of monkeys, and their general instinct is to avoid mankind, but they are capable individually of becoming extremely attached to humans or a human. But at any time they may bite you like a monkey and repent immediately afterwards. They have thousands of years of collective experience, call it inherited memory if you like, but no reasoning faculties. They are just Peter Pan's children who never grow up. I think this is interesting. Monkeys are similar to humans, and they have mental powers that are high for an animal, but low compared to humans. And they also have a playful disposition, but can be volatile. They are like children who never grew up. And from the way these fairies are described, that's a pretty good description. From a faith perspective, though, it, it wouldn't matter if we discovered a new race of monkeys, even monkeys that could turn invisible. And Conan Doyle came to a similar conclusion, stating... These creatures are in any case remote from us, and their existence is of little more real importance than that of strange animals or plants. He also had another interesting thought. At the same time, the perennial mystery why so many, quote, flowers are born to blush unseen, end quote, and why nature should be so lavish with gifts which human beings cannot use, would be solved if we understood that there were other orders of being which used the same earth and shared its blessings. I've never been particularly impressed by the claim that it's odd that the world is so big when we're so small, you know, as if the world was all about us. God can enjoy his own creation, whether anyone else sees it or not, just like an artist can be pleased with his own artwork, even if he never puts it on display in a gallery. But it is possible that there are other intelligent creatures, whether they're angels or aliens or interdimensionals or crypto-terrestrials or fairies, who can also admire creation. All right. So that's the faith perspective. What can we say about the Cottingly fairies from the reason perspective? If it turned out that fairies are real, that would give us additional reason to suppose that the Cottingly fairy photos were real. But we're not going to try to settle that question in this episode. We'll have future episodes looking at the idea that there are hidden races, even including fairies, on Earth. Instead, in this episode, we'll be looking strictly at the Cottingly fairies. So, were they fakes, thought forms, or real creatures? 
Well, in her interviews in the 1960s and 1970s, Elsie herself seemed to favor the idea that they were thought forms or psychic projections. Here's what Conan Doyle had to say about that possibility back in 1921. Can these be thought forms? The fact that they are so like our conventional idea of theories is in favor of the idea. But if they move rapidly, have musical instruments, and so forth, then it is impossible to talk of thought forms, a term which suggests something vague and intangible. But these little figures would seem to have an objective reality, as we have ourselves, even if their vibrations should prove to be such that it takes either psychic power or a sensitive plate to record them. If they are conventional, it may be that fairies have really been seen in every generation, and so some correct description of them has been retained. So Conan Doyle wasn't impressed by the idea that the, ther that the fairies were thought forms. Uh, he said that they seemed to have an objective reality and were too tangible with clothing and musical instruments and the ability to move rapidly, and he didn't expect thought forms to have those properties. He also wasn't impressed by the fact that they appeared so much like our standard image of fairies, since if fairies are real, people would have seen them before and that would have informed the way we imagine them. I think he has a valid point on the last one, but I'm not as sure about his argument that they display characteristics that thought forms would not have, since I don't know what characteristics thought forms would have if they were real. So what arguments did people use to support the idea that the photos were hoaxes? There were a variety of them, and they were of varying quality. Not all of them were good. Some people who looked at the photos thought that the backgrounds, the woods that the girls were in, were just stage scenery. But that turned out not to be true. Gardner and others went to the right house and visited the garden and the woods behind it, and the sites where the photos were taken were absolutely real. Others suggested that the photos could be faked in a studio, and that was quite true. You can fake any kind of photographic image you want if you're a professional in a studio. I mean, that's what special effects in movies are all about. But Conan Doyle and Gardner pointed out that just because you can do something under studio conditions, that doesn't prove that this is what was done by the girls. They went further to argue that the girls were very young, they were not experts in photography, and they were taking these photos in a garden, not a studio. They also had reputations, Conan Doyle and Gardner pointed out, for being very credible and truthful young ladies. Some pointed to the fact that the dancing fairies were slightly blurred, indicating that they were moving when the film was exposed, pointing to their genuineness, since cardboard cutouts or fairy dolls wouldn't be moving during a 150th of a second shutter snap. Another objection that some people raised concerned the hairstyles of some of the fairies, which were said to look like ones that were then fashionable in Paris. I didn't find a response to this in the literature of the time, but if I were to respond to it, I wouldn't rank this argument very highly. First, the similarity to Parisian hairstyles could be in the imagination of the critic. Second, by all accounts, fairies interact with humans and watch humans, so they could have picked up human hairstyles. Third, even supporters of the fairies acknowledge that human consciousness may help determine the forms that fairies take when they're visible. I mean, after all, that's what angels do when they take visible forms. Their forms are based on what humans expect. Well, maybe the same thing is true of fairies, and Elsie's and Francis's perceptions of what their hairstyles ought to look like might have influenced the hairstyles the fairies had when they took visible form. But fourthly, and most fundamentally, there are only a certain number of hairstyles that are possible. And so no matter what hairstyles the fairies were wearing, it was bound to be popular somewhere in the world. Okay, so what's the best argument that was posed at the time against the photos being genuine? It has to do with the way the fairies look in the photos. Many people pointed out that they look flat and don't have the kind of shadows that you'd expect three-dimensional bodies to have. That's why Elsie's parents searched her bedroom and wastebasket for evidence of cardboard cutouts and scraps, though 
They didn't find anything. In response, advocates of the photos argued that fairy bodies aren't like ours, that they're made of ectoplasm, which has a faint luminosity on its own. That means that they glow in a way that would interfere with them having the normal shadows you'd expect from a fully material body. They thus could look flat due to lack of shadows. I think that's a clever response, but if you look at the pictures carefully, they really just do look like flat cutouts. More than that, they look like drawings with occasionally visible lines and hatch lines and with super crisp edges where a pair of scissors could have been applied. But there's a problem with coming to a conclusion based on that fact, at least when it comes to the first of the photos, which was taken with the Midge camera. Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers explains, Jeffrey Crawley, editor of the British Journal of Photography, soon realized that the Midge camera which the girls used simply wasn't good enough to have taken the first photograph. In particular, the simple lens could not have produced such a sharp negative. This negative is quite lively. The edges of the fairy figures are quite sharp, and it clearly uh, could not have been produced by that lens in that midge camera. Crawley reasoned that this cannot have been the original print. Amazingly, he unearthed in Cottingley what he believes is an original print. It looks quite different. The original print is much softer, exactly the type of, shall we say, less lively image that you would expect from a camera of this type. Consequently, a lot must have gone on between that and that. Crawley believes that the photograph was retouched by an expert. So what you would have to do is, first of all, make yourself a fresh negative of this. And you retouch that negative, you improve it with an airbrush, and people were very skilled in those days, possibly more skilled than today even. He thinks that the man behind it was Edward Gardner, believer in fairies and friend of Conan Doyle. And that's not at all unreasonable. In fact, it doesn't even mean that there were shenanigans going on with the first photo. By the way, we'll have a link to what Crawley believes was an original print, so you can see the difference between it and the published version of the first photo. Back then, photos were frequently of poor quality, and they were often retouched to make them look better. This is one of the problems with a lot of the photos from the Old West here in America. They were routinely retouched to make the people posing in them look better, given the poor state of photography in the day. It was a normal thing, and if you look closely at Old West photos, you can often tell how they've been retouched. So you can imagine... If Edward Gardner or someone else early in the story gets a fairy photo that's fuzzy or has poor contrast or things like that, he might well and innocently take it to a photographer and say, hey, can you retouch this and clean it up for me? The intent wouldn't be to deceive people, but to help them more clearly see what the photograph recorded. It would be the 1920s equivalent of using digital enhancement to improve a photo today to make it clearer. But uh, because of the retouching process they used back then, it means that the flatness and edges of the fairy images in the first photo might be due to the retouching process, making it hard to argue either way for these characteristics. You know, it could be flat and look flat and have weird edges because of retouching or because it's a cutout. Could be either one. So then what about the pictures taken in 1920? They were taken with better cameras, but I also don't have a way to rule out the possibility that they were retouched as well. I can say that despite the better cameras, they also display fairies that look like flat cutouts. Further, I find it very suspicious that in 1921, when the girls were given cameras capable of taking 3D images and taking motion pictures they were unable to get any photographs, allegedly due to the weather and other factors. Those cameras would have revealed if the fairies were 3D figures capable of motion, and that's exactly when the girls didn't get any fairy photos. Are there any arguments about the images that you find conclusive? Yes. In 1983, the girls finally came clean and admitted the photos were faked. 
in 1985, Francis explained how they came up with the idea. You'll remember that their parents had been teasing them about saying that they had been seeing fairies. Well, Elsa said one night, we're getting ready for bed. She said, I've been thinking, kid, what about if I draw some fairies and cut them out in cardboard and we'll stick them up in the grass and take a photograph? So if they see them, they'll have to believe it. They'll stop all this joking. So that's what they did. They used a copy of Princess Mary's Gift Book, which was a charity children's book produced during World War One. It contained drawings of dancing women, and Frances based her images on these women and drew wings on them to make them look like fairies. Ironically, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was himself one of the contributors to Princess Mary's gift book, but he didn't notice the similarity. Then they cut out the images that Elsie had drawn. What we did... We, uh, with the, the long hat pin, we put it down down the back like that and stuck the, uh, the tape at the back like that and then wormed that down into the earth. And uh, they said that, uh, they said that the thing was that they could see them, that the fairies were moving when the photograph was taken, but that's because they did it in the breeze. <laughs> so the motion that the fairies displayed during the film exposure was because they were moving in the wind on their hat pin. So now that they had come clean, did the women express any regret over what they'd done? Frances did not. Here's what she had to say. I never even thought of it being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand it to this day why people were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. Because people keep often say to me, don't you feel ashamed that you've made all these... Poor people look fools. They believed in you. But I don't because they wanted to believe. Look at this photograph. That fairy's all out of drawing. That leg doesn't belong to that fairy. And somebody pointed it out in the, in the newspaper. And one of our dear believers said, well, fairies aren't like humans. They haven't got bodies like we have, or the skeleton and the arms and legs. They, they sort of put it together with thought, and sometimes it doesn't come out right. We didn't have to tell a lie about it at all, because always somebody came out to justify it. On the other hand, Elsie didn't go that far and felt that it was a situation that had kind of got out of hand. It was very embarrassing because, I mean, two village kids and a brilliant man like Conan Doyle, well, we could only just keep quiet. So after the highly respected Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got involved, Elsie felt that they were more or less forced to keep quiet and stick with their story. I mean, you could imagine how it would be crushing for a respected figure like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to have two little girls fool creator of Great Detective come out in the press. <laughs> I mean, that could have been profoundly humiliating for him. So you could understand why Francis would say, or why Elsie would say, maybe we don't want to do that. <laughs> so is that all there is to the story? The photos are fake and the fairies aren't real? You might think that, but there's a twist. But has the Beck yielded all its secrets? Though she admits the photographs were fakes, Francis still maintains that there were fairies at the bottom of the garden. I'd swear that there are fairies up there. Well, there were then, but there aren't now. So Francis said that although they faked the photos, there really were fairies in the wood. In the words of a more recent political scandal, the photos were said to be fake but accurate. In fact, Francis maintains that the fifth photo, which shows the fairy's sunbath or bower, was actually genuine and is an image of real fairies, and she continued to maintain that until her death in 1986. On the other hand, as a person who felt no regret about the fact that the others were hoaxes and having a record of hoaxing the public, I can't help but wondering if, as with Conan Doyle, Francis knew that the public had legs and decided to pull one of them. <laughs> and yet, Francis's conviction that the fifth photo was real was so compelling that she apparently convinced her own daughter, Christine. 
In 2009, now living in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Christine gave an interview in which she not only testified to her own belief in fairies and to the genuineness of the fifth photo, but also expressed her desire to clear her mother's name as a hoaxer, or at least clear her name as a total hoaxer. (laughs) So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Cottingsley fairies? Despite the attempt to maintain the genuineness of the fifth photo, I don't think that the Cottingley fairies were real. As charming as the story and the idea that we are surrounded by fairies and elves and gnomes is. And I'll let Sir Arthur C. Clarke have the last word on this subject. The Cottingley fairies were great fun while they lasted, which was most of the century. And the case is very instructive. It shows that claims made by sweet, innocent children must be treated as cautiously as those by adults. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the listener on The Cuddingly Fairies? We'll have a link to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's book, The Coming of the Fairies. Also, Edward Gardner's book, Fairies, A Real Book of Fairies. We'll also have the book Reflections on the Cottingley Fairies, Frances Griffith's In Her Own Words, with additional material by her daughter, Christine. So that was written by the 10-year-old cousin when she was older. We'll also have a couple of children's books. Apparently, this has become a popular story in children's books for parents to let their kids read, perhaps as a warning that we adults are on to the shenanigans you guys can get up to, so don't (laughs) try it. But uh, one of them is a children's book called The Fairy Ring, or Elsie and Francis Fool the World. And it's mostly a textbook, I mean, text-based. But there's also an illustrated children's book called Fairy Spell, How Two Girls Convinced the World That Fairies Are Real. We'll also have a link to Terry Jones's book, Lady Coddington's Pressed Fairy Book, and the movie Fairy Tale, A True Story that Mel Gibson produced. We'll have a link to the photos, including the allegedly unretouched version of the first photo and a comparison of the fairies, the dancing fairies, to the dancing women in Princess Mary's gift book. Uh, We'll then have articles on fairies, on the Cottingley fairies, also Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original 1920 article in the Christmas issue of The Strand magazine, the episode of Sir Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers that dealt with the Cottingley fairies, a link to Princess Mary's gift book, Joe Cooper's 1982 article, Cottingley, At Last the Truth, the Daughters 2009 interview, the Grand Chain from the Dance, the Lancers. And so that'll give you quite a number of resources to learn more about the Cottingley Fairies. Excellent. So uh, now let's turn to our mysterious feedback, where we respond to interesting feedback we get from our listeners. And this time they're responding to our episode on Akita, Our Lady of Akita. Uh, The first one comes from I Kung Fu You Too on YouTube who writes, as a board-certified hearing specialist, we in audiology are trained to see if people are malingering or faking when testing. The one thing Sister Agnes may have had was a cholesteatoma, sorry, (laughs) a tumor growing in the middle ear that healed, which would also be a miracle. Interesting. Thank you so much, Icung, for you too. It's nice to have a trained hearing specialist weigh in on what may have been going on and on the fact that, yes, indeed, they do check for malingering when they're uh, testing someone's hearing. Patrick Peters writes on YouTube, the words depicting God as super wrathful in apparitions make me question their authenticity. I would be careful in applying that as a test of authenticity. If you read the public revelation, especially found in the Old Testament, but even to some extent in the New Testament, you have some pretty wrathful language that's used to describe God's justice. It's balanced in other passages by very positive language about God's mercy and loving kindness. And so the two types of language have to be understood in harmony with each other. They have to be held in tension as both shedding lights on different aspects of God's character. And so if a particular apparition uses wrathful language, I wouldn't automatically dismiss it or discount it on those grounds because similar language gets used even in public revelation. Though having said that, we are living in a different age where people are more aware of God's mercy than in the Old Testament. So You would expect that to be found as well. But in an individual case, the consciousness of the seer 
may be affecting how the message is coming through and what message is being received. Okay. Brian writes via email, when you discuss the possibility that the phenomena were caused by fraud, you concentrated on the possibility that Sister Agnes perpetrated the fraud and how hard such a fraud would have been to pull off. What about the possibility that the entire religious community was in on the fraud or some subset of the community? Actually, we mentioned that at least briefly. One of the things that came out in the analyses of the blood, sweat, and tears was that they had three different blood types. If I remember correctly, it was A, A, B, and O. And the natural way to explain three blood types would be three confederates all cooperating with different aspects of a hoax. Having said that, the bishop, you know, there are other possible explanations, but like, you know, Mary's making some kind of statement about universal love of people of all blood types. But the bishop did end up signing off on the medical miracles and judged that the apparition was real. But yeah, we acknowledge that possibility, although it went by kind of briefly. Stephen writes via email, why did Bishop Ito have to contact the Archbishop of Tokyo to create a commission to investigate the apparition of Our Lady of Akita. Is this process, that is, reaching out to the Metropolitan, required in initiating these types of investigations? Not typically. What the One thing that I think was likely affecting the situation was when this phenomena started, when these phenomena started, it was before the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith had released its 1978 document on how to deal with apparitions. And so there may have been less certainty about what the bishop would need to do. And thus he checked with the apostolic nuncio, who said, why don't you talk to the Archbishop of Tokyo? So it may have just been because of the lack of clarity about the procedures for investigating this at the time. On the other hand, when bishops are investigating this kind of stuff, they keep in touch with Rome about it. Uh, They don't want Rome being surprised. And so it could have been natural to notify the nuncio in any event about this. And maybe the Archbishop of Tokyo had like access to better experts or something. It's like, hey, why don't you talk to the guy who can get an expert anywhere in Japan instead of just your diocese. And it could that could also just be formalities. I mean, you know, Japan is known for having a politeness culture. And I can imagine politeness even in this country involving talking to the local bishop before you tap an expert in his diocese and drag him into a potentially controversial Marian apparition investigation in your diocese. Right. Michael writes on Facebook, great episode. I'd heard of Akita, but was not aware of the details. Thank you for your balanced exploration of the events. I definitely want to learn more. Our Lady of Akita, pray for us. Thank you, Michael. Glad you appreciate the balanced approach that we try to bring to these issues. And uh, indeed, whether under the title Our Lady of Akita or some other title, may the Virgin Mary pray for us. Oli on Facebook writes, I read or rather learned about Our Lady of Akita on YouTube. I was really into this. What triggered my mind was that there were actually devout Catholics in Japan. I thought they all practiced Shinto and had never heard of fellow Catholics in Japan before. I wonder which missionary went there to spread the good news of Christ. It was initially Jesuit missionaries, followed later by some Franciscan and Dominican missionaries. The first, certainly the first major missionary was St. Francis Xavier. And in the further resources for this episode, in the show notes, we'll have a link to the history of Catholicism in Japan so you can read all about it. Which is a fascinating and beautiful history. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, since we were dealing with mythical paranormal creatures like the Cottingley Fairies today, I thought we'd do a Loch Ness Monster theme just up over the border in Scotland. And so we have two headlines about the Loch Ness Monster. The first one, Nessie has a scientific name. uh, The scientific name is Nessiteros rhombopteryx. And normally, scientific associations don't want to give cryptids scientific names because they're not proven to exist. And so why do we want to give a scientific name to something that may not exist? That seems kind of foolish. Mm -hmm. So normally they would say, go get us one and then we'll name it. But there's a special reason why Nessie needed a scientific name in Britain. So click the link and read the article to find out what that reason was. I'm disappointed, by the way. 
it should have incorporated some version of Borad or Zygon or something from <laughs> Nessie's various appearances in Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. The other link is about a bomber that was mistaken for the Loch Ness Monster. Back in 1940, they were testing a new bomber for use in World War II, or a, they were testing a bomber in any, in any event. It crashed in Loch Ness. Later, people found it by sonar and thought it was the Loch Ness Monster. But oh. they turned out it wasn't. They ended up, I don't know what the, I forget, they raised it. I want, I want to say unearth, but it's not under earth, it's underwater. <laughs> they yes. raised it, and even they plugged, it was still in really great shape. They even plugged in after all these years, now 80 years later, they uh, plugged the taillights into a new battery, and they turned on. Wow. So. Well yeah. built. <laughs> well preserved. Also well preserved by the peat that is in mm -hmm. Loch Ness that rained down on it and helped preserve it. Very nice. Excellent. So uh, that that well, about does it for this episode. Yeah. Now we want to, before we go, we want to say a very special thanks to your daughter, Dom, yes. who did the voice of Elsie for us. Yes. I was very proud of Isabella for uh, stepping up and, and joining in daddy's work. So <laughs> very good. Thank you, Isabella. Thank you very much, Isabella. So we want to appeal for your feedback. What are your theories about the Cottingly Fairies? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is a Fifth Friday, so we'll be doing Fifth Friday Weird Questions. And then the following Monday, we'll have a special Patrons Questions episode where we reward our patrons for their generosity by answering their questions. Excellent. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show, not just this show, but all of the episodes we've done. And you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time. Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>